from the city of brotherly love. This is Shark Bite Biz with David Strausser. You just arrived to the newest episode of Shark Bite Biz. I'm your rock star wannabe host, David Strasser. This is your place to learn how to grow a business during complete global chaos. Today, it's about the money. Yeah, first though, remember, please download the Shark Bite Biz app exclusively on Android at the Google Play uh, Store. All you've got to do is just search Shark Bite Biz. Very easy to find. You'll get every single episode of the show, all the audio version, the video version, the live streams, the clips, the snippets. Everything is right there in the app. And if you really love us and want to support the magic that we're doing here in the show, please, please just hit that super thanks button if you're watching on YouTube. Graciously, we will accept every dollar we can to keep doing all that we're doing here. So let's get back to today's show. We're going to chat about negotiating like a CEO and tell you what, it's some great stuff. So who do we have today? None other than Jotham Stein. Jotham S. Stein is the principal of the law offices of Jotham S. Stein PC. He has more than 25 years of experience representing entrepreneurs, C-suite executives, board members, venture capitalists, private equity principals, investment bankers, as well as employees of companies of all types and sizes. Stein is also the author of Executive Employment, Law Protecting Executives, Entrepreneurs and Employees, and a How-To Guide for Practitioners. Stein's new book, Negotiate Like a CEO, is an engaging look at how all employees can protect themselves with lessons learned from top entrepreneurs and executives, and how you can too. So without further to do let's bring jotham right on in here personal growth jotham welcome to shark bite biz you my friend you just became shark bait hey thanks for having me on your show happy to be your bait and uh it's great to uh, talk to somebody in the city of brotherly love i i lived there many many moons ago yeah yeah we can get into that Stuart, if you want in your intro because we have a tradition right here very first question every single guest What's your background? What's your history? What do you do for a living? How did you get there? Basically, tell us what makes Jotham, Jotham. Well, I grew up in uh, Long Island, New York. Uh, I went to Sasset High School. And from there, I was fortunate enough to go to University in Jersey, New Jersey, uh, uh, at Princeton. And uh, uh, before going to law school, I wanted to spend a couple of years out on the road and I hitchhiked around the world. Uh, one of those, uh, the hitchhike through Africa about I went about six months or so. I uh, actually made the money by driving a yellow cab out of 33 and Gray's Ferry. Back in the old days when you could only drive yellow cabs, there was no Uber. You did the cabs, uh, was that all over to make the money or just Philly? Uh, just in Philly. Um, and I did it a couple of times because I also rode out of the boathouses at one point. Uh, back when I had hair on my head, I could actually row a little bit. My, my very first memory in Philly was the telephone number for the cabs. Um, it, it, Tweet, like, I, I don't want to make fun of the guy, you know, but like he had an accent that I was from a smaller part of Pennsylvania outside of Philly originally. And I, I just remember, like, we tried to get the cab and the guy's like, tweet, 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 tweet. And we're like, really? He's like, yeah, uh, like, okay. So we called it and what do you know? It's a cab number. It actually really worked. I was so surprised. Yeah. Back in the old days, you would get, uh, when you're the cab driver, you would click in and then you would try to click in first and then they would tell you where the person had called from and you go pick them up. It's totally a different world, right? 
They were all yellow cabs that came out of 33 and Grace Ferry. You leased them in the morning, you know, for 12 hours or what you, whatever. Is that why the number was uh, three, three, all like all threes? I don't know if you, if you remember that, but it was back in like about 2000 ish. It was all like three, 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 three. I'll never forget that. Maybe, maybe that's why I don't, I don't know. And it was a long time ago, so I don't actually remember, but I do remember 33 and Grace Ferry and what that was like. But, um, um, I actually started driving there. I I didn't didn't know anything about the city. I just needed to make some money, and uh, and uh, in the old days, I would uh, take my money down to the ATM, which were new new in those days, and put my money in. And when I had enough, I I went off and traveled. And then I went to law school uh, after a couple of years uh, doing that and doing some sports. Another sport called luge up in Lake Placid. Uh, New York, which is sledding. That's a French word for sledding. And went to law school and uh, I continued to travel to go so I could make all the continents except for Antarctica that have people on them before I sort of settled down, became a lawyer. And uh, I've been now practicing more than uh, 25 years. And um, one thing led to another. I went to the big firm originally, stayed there a couple of years, but um, then hung out my own shingle. And now what I do and have done for more than 25 years is represent uh, entrepreneurs, represent executives, C-suite executives, and everybody else in employment, mid-level managers, upper-level managers, even newbies starting out um, in their personal relationships with their companies. So hiring, firing, stock options, equity, employment offer letters, employment agreements, separation agreements, change of control agreements, all of those things. Um, and uh, as a result, I've been giving that advice and seen so many things over uh, over these 25 plus years, I decided to write a book, uh, to help everybody out, uh, so that they would learn stuff in the beginning and not get uh, cheated or mistreated, mistreated in, in employment or forced out as so often happens with entrepreneurs. If they can learn all that information up front, what to look out for the tea leaves, the upsides and downsides, what's in the contracts. And most importantly, to have the information that the other side has. Like most people don't know what the company's thinking when they contract with the company. Most entrepreneurs have no idea what the investors are thinking when they contract with the investors. And uh, and so I feel that I wrote a book uh, and it's Negotiate Like a CEO is the title of the book. Uh, and um, uh, and I, I put in also 59 stories in there that are fictional, but that happen over and over again, repeat sort of events that happen. So to make it in a quick and easy and breezy read. So uh, uh, although or anybody who picks up the book, I'll have a fun time reading the book. Oh, that's great. That's great. Yeah. We'll definitely, uh, get the promoting the book in then at the end, but, uh, let's try to steal some of that knowledge and get, get it for free before we have to buy it off Amazon. Right. Um, couple of things. So I looked it up. Uh, what was it? Uh, the taxi cab company. What was the name down in Philly again? Was it all threes? I Googled the phone number, Philadelphia, yellow th cab, all threes. And that's the phone number, the three, three, three. So who knows? Maybe you were my cab driver that picked me up. I would ask you, I would ask you a lot of questions if I picked you up. Cause I had a great time. That was one of the great things about driving was that I got to meet so many interesting people. Yeah, no, I could definitely believe that, which that's actually a, a perfect segue. You should host a podcast. Um, because my next question was going to be about travel. You said about Africa. In fact, you just saw the, we were talking about this pre-show. Um, so this is, you know, give you an idea. You usually talk to the guests a couple of minutes before we start, you know, to get the vibe going. But we were talking pre-show and I asked him if he's watched a show at all. And he was telling me about how he was fascinated listening to the previous episode that just aired probably a few weeks ago by the time this airs on with uh, Lizzie Horvitz. Uh, the the CEO of Finch and 
you know, about how between my time, Mexico, Peru, but her time also um, living out in, uh, in the tribe in Tanzania, stuff like that. So we were talking a little bit about that. And, you know, where it goes to you, Jotham, is, I mean, you were backpacking in Africa as well, too. You were, you know, uh, sounds like you traveled all the continents or at least tried to for a bit of time. How did that impact your life? And, you know, did you go off the beaten road? Did you go, you know, onto the, the you know, where the real people live, not just the tourist traps? Oh, absolutely. I, I hitchhiked everywhere. Remember, I didn't have so much money in those days. And, and also, I wanted to meet people. So I've hitchhiked right through the middle of Africa, right through the middle of Australia. Um, I've been, um, you know, hitchhiked through Central America. Um, uh, although I didn't hitchhike in those days in Panama because it was quite dangerous. So I took a bus. No, right now, I don't think you could. I mean, I say this with all due respect. You remember my wife's Peruvian, my, uh, oldest son's Mexican. So, uh, you know, let's try to be disparaging, but there's not many places in central to South America that I would consider hitchhiking right now. So, when you know, when you're young, you do a lot of different things, right? And take different... When I was young, I, I would probably do it. I've, In fact, I've, I have done it. So there you go. So I hitchhiked from, uh, from Guatemala to, uh, you know, to Panama. I, I stopped in Costa Rica because uh, I took a bus down to Panama City because there were too many banditos on the road in those days. And I've hitchhiked in... I've hitchhiked in South in, in in South America for sure, and not in Peru. Uh, I crossed the border and sorry, I was going to say we were thinking of driving from Lima to Tijuana when we ended up deciding to move back uh, so that I could have the ability to work back in the states again. And we, uh, you know, we were going to go. Up, what's the highway called? The Panamericana. You can't. It's the. It's the. Uh, Pan America Highway, but you can't you can't drive that. You have to ship your car from Colombia to Panama because you can't get over the Darien Gap. Uh, well, we well actually we weren't thinking of 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 driving. We were th- sorry, excuse me. We were thinking of getting a bus, you know, taking bus. So what? Uh, because flights at that time, for whatever reason, were insane. I mean, we were looking at nearly, uh, and this is going back to two thousand late two thousand ten, early two thousand eleven. You know, you're talking like 2K from Lima to Tijuana or even Mexico City. And that wasn't normal. Like my round trip ticket from New York City to uh, Lima was like six, seven hundred bucks. So it was like just something happened in six months. I don't know what it was. Maybe there were some economic conditions in the U.S. This is late 2010 again. Um that led to a spike in, in flight prices, but we could not find any decent flights. So we were looking for alternatives. What ended up happening was we did take the Pan American Highway. We took it up to Quito, Ecuador. Uh, well, that's out off the highway, but we took it up the coast of Peru, crossed the border into Ecuador, and then went through the Ecuadorian jungle, I guess, mountains, whatever, till we got to Quito, and then flew from Quito to Tijuana, and it was only 500 bucks a person. You want to hear the crazy thing? First lay, first layover, Lima, Peru. <laughs> yeah, I, I've, uh, I've done that too, you know, where, where it's cheaper in some place. Like I once flew from, um, uh, from uh, Botswana. I bought a ticket in Botswana because the ticket, but it left from Harare, Zimbabwe. So it just happened to be, it was much cheaper to buy this ticket 
this is in the old days when you'd get like these telefax type things that would come up with the with the, all the information on the cost of where the tickets were so i bought a ticket in in botswana that left that left uh, um, um, from Zimbabwe, Harare, and then I think it wound up in the long way Malawi before it before it came back to the states. Uh, well, came back to Europe, uh, which is where I was going at the time. So I'm very familiar with that. It, or it used to, they don't have them really anymore. But it used to be in the old days, you would take a cheap flight, like a ninety nine dollar flight to London, and in London you go to a place called Bucket Shops and uh, near Victoria Station, and you would buy, go there, and you there would be discount airfare shops, and you would go buy your discount ticket. I did that one time. Um, that's how I actually wound up in Kenya. So visited a friend visited a friend who was studying at Cambridge. You know, with my backpack, I showed up at his dorm, and then uh, two days later, I bought the ticket two days before. I got on a plane, and well, if I went to Africa. That, that, that's amazing. I love travel stories because, as I've stated on this show over and over and over again, I really think traveling, especially if you're American, you know, going to to poor countries, because let's face it, we have some very poor areas here in America. I don't think many people can deny that. But I think we're kind of blind when we look at it within our own country. And I think that getting that, you know, kind of like the outside looking in as far as getting that perspective maybe through a foreign company, a country actually helps people, you know, see how lucky they are to really have what they have. Uh, did that have any type of impact like that for you? Oh, first of all, I wouldn't give up the years I spent traveling for anything, but let me, let me go back and it, they'll always be with me. And it makes me a better lawyer now even, but let me go back. The poverty that I saw driving a cab in Philly I have seen other poverty-stricken areas in the world, but it, it could be really bad in our own cities. We, do, we don't see it, and we don't pay attention to it. At one time, I was in Northern Ireland, for example, back in the Troubles, so that's probably before some of your listeners were born, and, and people would be, it was terrible. They would be bombed, you know, there would be a bomb in some pub or something, and it would, but it would kill a few people, um, which is terrible. But nobody ever thought about all the people that were dying in Philadelphia or New York or Chicago every day because it wouldn't be in the papers. It was a random act of violence and it was a religious act in Northern Ireland. But it, they didn't have it's still random and not religious based in all our cities. So I have to say uh, one of the reasons I drove a cab is I wanted to drive a cab to see America. And uh, and, I, you know, I've hit I've, I didn't hitchhike. I've driven across America. But you have to you have to see a city to understand the the segregation that goes on to understand the poverty that goes on um, to understand how people just, um, you know, are, are have in very, very unfortunate circumstances. And just like in other parts of the world, yes, I've been to some of the poorest countries in the world, but I have to say back home in our country in you, in the city of brotherly love, there's a, there are incredibly unfortunate areas um, with, with poverty. That's just unbelievable. That's where I think, you know, a lot of Americans are, and I don't want to judge everybody because I, I think they're aware of it, but I think they're kind of blissfully ignorant. Like it's just like, a, you know, nothing I could do. can't deal with it. But yet, um, you know, they go over to a place like like Mexico or, or they see it in Africa or wherever. And it's like they're all teary eyed and it, it changes them uh, for the better. And then I think most people do end up kind of seeing it then when they come back. Because they have those images of when they're in a place like Africa or Central South America or some other poor Asian countries, and then they come back to the U.S. and they're like, "Wow, you know, the, the, this place in Philly or New York or especially L.A. like Skid Row, 
Like, holy cow, Skid Row is worse off than a lot of the ghettos that I've, you know, lived or have been in down there in Tijuana. Skid Row is horrid, you know, and we even had an outhouse. They don't even have that in Skid Row for the most part. You know, they're using that in the street. And, you know, that that's where I mean that had I not lived those experiences myself, I'd probably be one of those, you know, blissfully ignorant people that uh, wouldn't pay attention or actually see what's going on around me with that same perspective because the international travel did change me. So that's my take. I, I'm, I'm a big believer that everybody should go and see the rest of the world because it, 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 it makes you a better person and a better American. I'm also a believer that if you could travel from one part of your own country to see another part, you become much more appreciative that we're one country and, and there are differences, but, but you have to see what, what our country's like as well. So both ways. And, and the, the tragedy of of of, of, of people uh, of non travel, if you will, is so many people never leave the states. I know multiple people who don't have never used their passport. Well, there are fifty of them. You know, there's there's fifty of them. There's a lot to see here. Oh no, no, I, I meant that. Yes, of course, there are fifty states. Uh, uh, but most, uh, I finally just saw my fiftieth just recently. But but um, oh, you made it all fifty! Congratulations! That's that's a bucket list item of mine. I'm probably about halfway there. So yes, uh, I, I I got finally got to fifty. So um, and been to seventy odd countries, I think. Uh, but both of those are wonderful experiences and and um, have been with me forever, as as was driving a cab in Philly. Now, I think the cab experience is one of those things that, you know, just kind of sticks with you and stays with you as well to see in that, that area. You know, it, it is one of those unique positions where you get to see a lot of people and you see them at their best and you're seeing people at their worst. I, I just think it's one of those odd odd positions you know you get everything from you know people that are, are mentally ill to to rich people to drunkards and you know like i'm sure you could fill up this whole podcast with just stories from your cab days if you wanted to uh, for sure i could probably write I, well i definitely could write another book with all the, with all the stories uh that i had uh while, while driving a cab so anyways let's uh uh really fascinating backstory there because you know, I again, I think I might have said this during the show with Lizzie. I'm a big believer that you have to keep one eye in the present. You have to keep your finger on the pulse. You have to know what you're doing. But you also need to keep an eye on the future because the decisions that you make today are going to determine whether or not you hit your goals or what outcomes you're going to have in the future. And that's where things like the travel, stuff like that, it made you into who you are. It made me into who I am. And I think that there's a, a lot of a lot of synergy there because it, it plays into the next topic that we have uh, here, you know, on your on your book, as far as, you know, negotiate like a CEO and you go over, you know, we're in the great resignation. You know, a lot of people are also being terminated now in a lot of places as well, too. So let's get into the general discussion as far as employment and grievance and offer letters. You know, what do you do if you take a tech job, you get an employment agreement, 
uh, or uh, an offer letter, you sign it, you quit your job, you're about to start and they pull the offer. It sounds like you're screwed in the most part. Yes, that's a very difficult situation to be in unless you protected yourself in your own offer letter, right? And so your offer letter, um, that's what the theme of the book is. Why is it called Negotiate Like a CEO? What do, what do CEOs do? They negotiate their severance agreement, their separation agreement, whatever you want to call it, their protection for their um, salary um, and, and post-employment benefits on day one before they join the company. And so why do they do that? Because they think everything, uh, everybody hopes everything's going to go well. And I don't know any CEO ever took a position that didn't think they were going to make this company go through the roof in terms of success. But they also know that things go bad all the time. People get fired, just like you were describing with no notice. So uh, if you protected yourself in the beginning, what I call professional prenuptial agreement, and for just a new Becky, it would be a you know, one-line sentence. If you terminate my employment at any time, you'll pay me three months of salary. I'm making that up as one of the protections. Or you'll vest me one year worth of my stock. Then if you get that situation where you sign the letter, the company signed the letter and they yank the offer, then you've protected yourself. If you're in a situation that, that that hasn't happened, you just signed that letter like so many people do, either because they feel they have no choice, because they don't know they can negotiate, uh, for any any number of reasons. For a while, though, I decided to interrupt because you, you're bringing up a valid point as far as people negotiating because they didn't know that they could negotiate. But for a while, employers had the control. It was an employer's market for most of the last decade. And then somewhere around, I think, 2016, 17, 18, 19, you know, the job market got super, super, super hot heading. And then we got COVID, obviously, and now we're in the great resignation. But I, I think we were in employers market so long, a lot of people, they kind of forgot they can negotiate. And I remember before I started working with Vision 33, you know, seven years ago, I'm trying to negotiate a contract. And, you know, they're like, dude, we're not doing this. Either take it or leave it. <laughs> There's no negotiating. You know, you want to, I, I, I'd, I'd like, you know, they think I'm arrogant. I'm thinking, no, 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 you guys are arrogant. You're asking me to give up my business that I built myself. Wasn't the biggest, but it was supporting my family and me, you know, to go work for you guys. And yet I'm asking for some specific terms, you know, to have some security. If I'm giving something up and you're not going to allow that. So I was kind of, uh, you know, upset with that. But I think people have forgotten that because it's been so long since we've had it. Most people just focus on the salary number, you know, and that's all they, they negotiate. So um, what you describe is really important because if you have leverage, so but leverage happens, you can only negotiate when you have leverage and the other side wants to negotiate. So I don't know what your specific situation was when you sold your small company, but um, uh, you would have leverage, First, uh, you'd have leverage if you want, didn't mind not, not selling your company and not moving to Vision 33, you would have leverage if there were other potential purchases out in the marketplace? Well, that wasn't with Vision 33, just to be clear. That was with a, another company before I ended up landing with Vision 33. So I was doing independent consulting, basically. And you know, I did a couple interviews before I landed at Vision 33. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was, it was, it was rough. It was kind of crazy at some points. Even in the, it's all about leverage, right? And it's all about, and that comes in many different forms. Um, but even in a down economy, that is when the employers have, um, more control, um, or, uh, if, if they really want you, then you have leverage. 
And some they can really want you for any different number of reasons, even in a down economy. So um, that's the whole the theme is don't uh, negotiate, you know, sort of for what you're worth and don't underestimate your ability to negotiate. The other side can always say no, as they said to you, and then you can always go somewhere else. So um, uh, that's really important. Uh, and, and a lot of people um, either don't realize they can negotiate or they they don't understand how much the other side may want them. And so they under negotiate. They don't get they leave stuff on the table often. Um, because they didn't know what, didn't know about it, but but you, you know you can take your situation and, and talk about you know the different kinds of times when you could negotiate yourself and when you might have leverage and so forth. I mean, I'm in the sales business dev- development world. If you don't expect me to drive a hard negotiation for my contract, okay, for my employment contract, why the hell are you hiring me? I mean, that makes no absolute sense. Obviously, if I'm not negotiating a good employment contract for me whether I ultimately win or not. I mean, you should be happy with that. Like, I don't get it when I get a salesperson and or I'm hiring a salesperson and we're trying to get them. Sometimes they're just hungry and they're like, hey, this is where I want to go next step. I'll do anything and that's fine. Other people, you know, you're trying to, you know, swirl onto you and it's like they negotiate hard. And then, you know, a lot of HR people may view, oh, you know, that's uh uh, pain in the ass type person. No, we want to steer clear of that. You know, I, I gives off that vibe. I think from HR crews around the world for that type. But I'm like, no, that's exactly what you want. That's why we're hiring this guy because he's a good hard negotiator or girl. Um, you know, what what do you think about that? I, I agree a hundred percent, and I think all of your listeners should just replay what you just said. And for two two reasons, I want to bring up. One is I hear that all the time, even at a C-suite level. Should I tell them I have a lawyer? Should I negotiate? I'm like, that company is hiring you. They expect you to have a lawyer at your level. They expect you to negotiate hard. They don't expect you to punch them in the face, but they expect you to have a hard negotiation because as soon as they hire you, metaphorically speaking, I want to make sure we're metaphorical, you all go go to bed together, right? You go to bed together and they then want you to negotiate hard for the company. So how much respect are they going to have for you otherwise? And so I have that conversation over and over again, probably multiple times a month. The second thing I want to say, which you're talking about sales, is that people, um, multiple times in my career, multiple times, I've had EVPs of worldwide sales of companies um, who can negotiate $10 million deals, $50 million deals, $100 million deals for the company, but they can't negotiate for themselves out of a paper bag. It's a fascinating sort of psychological dynamic that I'm I'm not really sure about why it happens. I'm sort of like some psychologists could say. Yeah, probably, probably like the plumber that doesn't have uh, hot water in their own house, you know, that type of situation. It's true. And so sometimes they come to me and I've been in some wild situations, you know, these EVPs that where the whole company rolls up to them and they're being commissioned, commissioned off of everybody else, if you will. Uh, and they don't have a commission plan themselves. And uh, and so they come and, you know, once we help them out and then we give a lot of um, shadow counsel, um, it, it'll work out. Uh, but sometimes on the back end, they get fired um, and they don't. And, and, they, and they haven't negotiated a good deal for themselves, which they hopefully learn from and then make sure that in the next company it goes to. But it's a, that's a really interesting dynamic. But what you said originally, I just wanted to make that point because you're going to have listeners. You want to you're going to have listeners out there that it's going to be outside their comfort zone and to negotiate. But but doesn't matter if it's outside your comfort zone. If you don't negotiate, 
The other side, whether it's an investor in your company as an entrepreneur or the employer, they're, they're getting more than they should. They're taking advantage of you in a way because it's outside your box. And that's, uh, you know, comfort zone. So um, I say, um, I know you're the legal side of things that you're not the HR person, but why do when you get a sales rep or an executive, especially, I think, I think it comes to, especially from the sales side of thing, because of the fact that, um, you know, those people sell for a living, but although sometimes there's exceptions, where they don't, you know, sell for themselves good, you know, they just kind of curl up in the ball, like, okay, mommy. Um, but outside of that, they, uh, you know, I, I know a lot that they negotiate hard counter, 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 counter. And it, it takes a minute because they're trying to get the best deal possible and not leave one single dime on the table why do so many companies look down at that? I mean, shouldn't that be a good thing if you got someone that has a quote unquote, um, you know, like give a shit attitude is like off the charts? Well, so there's different reasons for that. First of all, take HR, let's just discuss them. Their job is to protect the company. So that's what they do for a living. And uh, almost every company, they, they if you're getting terminated, you, David, uh, were being terminated, they would put HR between you and your boss because they run interference. They make sure, you know, the company decide they didn't want you anymore. They do, they say whatever the company needs. So in, in a circumstance of negotiation, they don't want to have a lot of negotiation because their job is 100% for the company. They don't run a business. HR people do not make business decisions. There's somebody behind them that's making the business decision on how much to pay you, how much equity to give you, and so forth. Now let's take the business itself. Some Some managers for example, are yes men and yes women. They don't want to hear anything else. So if you negotiate hard, they're going to be worried into, in their mind, even if it's not conscious, that you're going to come in there and you're not going to be a yes person, right? They don't, they don't operate that way. Now, there are other, I want to say there are other managers who are very self-assured. They want to have the best person out there, just like I described negotiating with them, because the minute you sign on that dotted line and you become the company's employee, you, they want you out there negotiating for themselves. So a lot of that has to do with personality of who, who it is your boss is going to be and who it is the, you know, the company dynamic and so forth. But I can tell you, I've negotiated, you know, uh, you know, on behalf of or been shadow counsel for many um, um, uh, executives and even at the senior level and many mid-level managers and, and, and they've negotiated hard, but once they sign on, they become wonderful employees and the company really values them. So, it, you know, sometimes you want to ask yourself, if you're negotiating with somebody and they say, take it or leave it, you know, the company and, and, and um, um, or in a negative way or in a bad way. Uh, maybe you don't want to work there. Maybe you want to work somewhere else. That, that's exactly what I was thinking. You know, like that that's how I screened out until. I found an offer. It's like, no, we're not a, a cultural fit. And, you know, I'm the one that's actually uh, rejecting them, you know, because I've always, again, it's been, what, seven years or so, maybe eight, almost eight since I've uh, actually done interviews. But back then, I mean, yeah, it was still in my, you know, 29, 30-ish range. And I still, it's not that I was cocky or anything like that, but it's like, again, you're asking me to give up my consulting business. You guys, to come work for you, you all need to uh, sell me on why I need to be here. 
and then make that offer worthwhile. Okay. Because I know I can do easily whatever you all need. And I came to that agreement with uh, uh, Vision 33 with uh, uh, little to no um, uh, pushback from them and, you know, totally ended up uh, just kicking butt. So it worked out for me. That's great. Uh, that that's, uh, um, You had leverage, you had uh, concerns, and you stuck to your guns, and then you got the best deal you could um, uh, in this example. Now, I have to say, sometimes people don't have any leverage and they have to accept the job because they have to feed their family because they don't have anything on their resume because there's no other job out there. So my point in the book is protect yourself if you can, um, it, it, regardless of whether it's a one line sentence in an offer letter or, or, or multiple pages in a, in a, in an employment agreement. But if you're not going to do that or don't want to do it or can't do that, at least go into the relationship that is with your company, or if you're a founder of a company raising funds with, with the investors, with your eyes wide open. So you know exactly what's happening and you can see in advance if you're getting pushed out in the founder situation, or you can see the tea leaves on the wall that you're going to be forced out as an employee. And if you have no protection, then you want to start protecting your bottom line, your downside as fast as possible by getting other opportunities. So if things go wrong, um, which hopefully you've, you've seen the tea leaves and you know you don't have any protection, if things go wrong, then you can move before they really go wrong and you're out on the street. Or in the case of a founder, sell your company to another company before the investors take control and kick you out of there. Right, right, right. So we're talking offer letters, employment agreements. What's the difference between the two? Not Nothing really. Uh, they sound great. An offer letter typically is, people refer to an offer letter as a one or two page letter, three page letter. And an employment agreement, maybe nine pages, 15 pages, 20 pages. But Regardless of how many words they use, it's the protection, the lines that are in there that can that, that, that make a difference. So you can have a more protective offer letter for yourself, a two-page offer letter that's more protective than a 20-page employment agreement. And let me just say, what do I mean by protection? Protection is what you get um, sort of if you get terminated without cause, without cause in employment. You know, we're all almost all, everybody in the country is at will employee. Most states, not everybody, uh, but most are. Yeah, there is actually uh, that's one thing I think some people don't uh, realize. I mean, there is uh, what like uh, two, three states, whatever it may be, uh, that are not at will employment places, right? Yeah, I don't actually know how many, but most, but by contract, the contract, the offer letter, read your offer letter, it almost always says that will employ. Now there's certain exceptions. Some people are hired for two or three years. And if you're talent in the movie business or on, on TV, for example, you're going to have a contract for a set period of time. But most, most people are at will employees. And, and um, which means you can be hired, uh, you can be fired for any reason or no reason at all, with or without cause, with or without notice. Uh, not except for an illegal reason. They can't they can't fire you for illegal discrimination, for example. That would be illegal. But most they can walk you to the door for any other any other legal reason anytime they want. So what do I mean by protection? I mean protection is is negotiating like the CEO. Um, what happens if you are terminated and walk to the door? And and that's usually in the form of some severance pay, three months, five months, six months, eight months of severance pay that you negotiated on day one. Protection for your equity if you're if your equity is nothing more than stock, stock options, restricted stock, um, some interest in the company. Having accelerated vesting if you get terminated that you that you get say a year two years of full vesting of your equity um and there are other other things i talk about in the book that one might want um and that's what i mean by protection and what most ceos do is negotiate that on day one 
right? Every uh, and and so I, my uh, theme of the book is: if you're not going in with your eyes wide open and taking all the risk, negotiate something for yourself. And going back to what you say, you can have one or two sentences in that offer letter that protect you, um, protect your equity that 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 are much more powerful than in a. 20 page offer uh, employment agreement. So let me ask you this, okay? At what level of employee should you consider having a lawyer involved? That's a really good question. Uh, it, uh, you, it should really be every level should be the answer because everybody can be helped out. Even today and yesterday, I, I, I was helping a an experienced person, but a new, new in, 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 in private, in, in, um, in the private world, uh, a, a private corporation world. But having said that lawyers cost money, right? And so, uh, there's always a give and take. So for, uh, and, and whether you can afford that or not, but I have to say at least at a mid-level manager and above, um, sometimes the cheapest thing you can ever do is pay a lawyer up front, as painful as that might be to help you. And you might not even realize the benefits you got until a year, two years, eight years later, when you get fired or forced out of your company. Anybody starting a company? What? what I mean, what if they just want to fire you because you're bringing a lawyer to uh, renegotiate your uh, employment offer, you know, for like the annual employment offer renewal or something like that. I mean, can that happen? And what do you do in that situation? Sure, that can happen because that's not illegal to hire. It's not illegal to fire somebody because they brought a lawyer with them. And it's not illegal to fire somebody because they're negotiating, quote unquote, too hard. Okay, so if you're in that situation, that's that's your risk. That's always a risk. And negotiating, there's always a risk that somebody's going to say no, and they're not going to want to negotiate any further, right? When you walk to the door, as you're in sales, when you walk to the door, you know, the classic, I'm walking to the door if you, if you don't want to negotiate anymore, and they let you open the door and walk out, then you don't have a deal. That's your risk. now, And, and that's a real risk in employment, right? Because then you'll be on the, on the street. And that's what a lot of people worry about. I have to be honest with you. That's what they worry about. And sometimes it does happen. But the, in my experience, it's anecdotal, it's not statistical, I didn't take a study. In my experience, the worst that could happen mostly is somebody will say no when you bring a lawyer. But often you'll get a lot more um, if you try to negotiate than otherwise. Because if you're good at what you do, now there are certain companies that say, honestly, and this is the risk, you're out of here, I don't care how good you are. I don't care what your sales were. I don't care how good an employee you are. But a whole bunch of companies will think, they'll make a business decision. And they'll say, okay, we got to pay that person more. We have to give them more to keep them around. And then you push and they push back and eventually you come to some resolution. So um, again, if you're successful at what you do, um, there are companies that just won't negotiate. There's some out there I could tell you, and we'll mention them here that won't negotiate. But but a lot will make the business decision. Um, it's a cost of doing business, how much you pay your employee. So if your employee has a tremendous return, and you're a shrewd business person as a boss or a CEO, then um, you're going to pay that person more. That's what I'm talking about. People under under underappreciate how how valuable they are to the company. Whether they pay somebody a hundred thousand or one hundred twenty thousand or one hundred fifty thousand a year, in certain positions is irrelevant to the company because they're getting such a big return. But if you don't ask for in this example one hundred fifty and you're making one hundred thirty, you've undersold yourself and you've given that money, that extra amount, you've given it to the company. So they're happy to take it. And to HR, HR is always going to tell you you're not worth what you're what you're asking for, because that's their job. 
right? You know, so, so what? They don't make the they don't make the business decisions, which is why we often tell our clients, if you can negotiate directly with the decision maker and keep HR out of it, if you can, it's not always possible. Yeah, yeah, I know a lot of companies, it's not possible in at all. Uh, but so here, here's a little bit of a, I guess, off the wall type question um actually first before before i get there because we'll we'll finish with that um let's circle back to one other question i had here in the notes looking for it right now um mergers acquisitions okay with mergers and acquisitions what do you do to protect yourself as an employee that if your company is merged or acquired that you have coverage you know that you're not going to be up oh, she's redundant bye uh that you have some protection that happens all the time and if you have equity if you have stock options out there you need to know what your plan says because sometimes your options can be canceled uh even nobody ever tells you about it it's not in your agreement it's in the the plan that's incorporated into your agreement um, so there's a, you, you, the question you ask, the answer is at, at multiple different levels. There are multiple different levels of both individuals and where you are in the stage of your employment. If you have negotiated an agreement, even a one-line sentence in your offer letter that says, if there's a change of control of the company, you will vest me all my shares or you'll pay me six months of severance if you fire me, you're protected on day one. That's called a change of control clause. All right. So then you don't really aren't as concerned that you'll be made redundant because you have protection in the beginning. Your employment letter, your offer agreement, your offer letter says um, you have change of control protection. All right. There's more complexity in that. There's a single trigger and a double trigger. I could talk about it at length and that's uh, talked about in my book, but that's one level. Second level is um, a, a, a second level is if you are an executive at the company and you have a seat at the table or if people care about you, then you negotiate even before the change of control, you negotiate protection or retention agreement protection. So that if you get fired, um, uh, you'll, you'll be paid separation pay and you'll be paid uh, some of your equity. So for example, there are certain people always in an acquisition at the highest levels that are, uh, and I'll address the mid-level mid managers now and, and everybody else. But that are always going to be redundant. CFO, they're usually on their way out even before the transaction closes. Uh, VP of business development, they don't need two VPs of business development. They acquire in the target, so the target's on their way out. Um, and they're often sales as well. They don't need two sales organizations. So someone in your position, if Vision 33 were to be acquired, you would be at risk. I don't even know anything about who's doing the acquisition, but I know that David Strasser would be a, a, at risk. If you're at a company and your company is being, uh, you know you're a target and you're at a level where, and, and they often give retention agreements. They say, okay, this is gonna go on for six months, this negotiation. If you and the engineer or, or you in marketing stay around to the close, we'll give you, we'll guarantee you at least six months of retention pay as an example. But let's say you don't get that. Let's say you don't get that and you see your company's being acquired and, and you got to think coldly and calculatingly, am I going to be made redundant? And this happens all the time. Then what you should do is immediately start going, looking for another job right away because you want to protect your downside. And, you know, if you're not being protected, you want to go get another job. So if your company is acquired, um, you have the opportunity to protect yourself. If somebody's going to come in and walk in and say, you're out of here, or they're going to give you a, a whatever it's a pink slip, which happens all the time. 
um, you, you have another job. And let me say that it not only happens all the time, the acquirer, the acquirer knows who they're firing even before they do the acquisition. They, and, and not only that, the target, sometimes the HR department from the target, that's your company in the world of Vision 33 where they get acquired. They are preparing their, um, sometimes they're preparing their um, separation agreements for the day of the close. All right, so the target is preparing it. So if you're in that situation where you don't have an retention agreement, you don't have you don't have change of control protection in the beginning, which is why anybody should try to get it if they can, and every executive should and every founder should. Um, if you don't have those things, get yourself another job right away. And so that you at least have a choice. You can stay with the company you're at, or you can go and 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 uh, have a have a, a career with a smooth transition to the new company. And hopefully at that new company, you negotiate for a better deal for yourself, right? Uh, and you negotiate um, some protection um, for yourself as well. Uh, I have to say also that getting fired from companies is often a, a great um, learning, not only learning, nobody likes to get fired, but but at all, it's always terrible, um, especially the day it happens or the week it happens. But sometimes people are much better off uh, because they get much better jobs um, down the road. Uh, and so it's a, it's a great sort of catalyst for improvement in a career. You know, people often forget, you know, early on in my career, I used to get, uh, a lot of slack cause it would be like, Oh, I changed jobs every uh, 18 to 30 months, you know, on average when I was younger and I'd get slack from that for employees. Oh, you're just going to jump around every two years. Well, every time I do, I make more money. I mean, what do you want me to do? You want me to stay with you to get a $2,000? Uh, you know, if I'm lucky, probably maybe even $1,000. That's probably closer to a uh, $500 or $1,000 annual raise. Or do you want me to jump somewhere that's going to pay me $15,000 a year or more? And that's how you gradually end up making it. Um, you know, so I, I did jump around a little bit when I was younger. Um, I think that that was more trendy back then. I think that trend stuck around though. And a lot of people do it because you do end up usually making more money by changing, um, changing companies than staying stagnant at one place. Depends on what company and where you are in the country. So in Silicon Valley, uh, where one of my three offices is where and where I practiced since I was at Stanford Law School. So, so <laughs> yeah, I cover the country like Chicago, New York, and, and Palo Alto, Silicon Valley. But but um, here, it's, it's uh, listen, there are people that work for HP their whole lives. But here, it's very, in Silicon Valley, people move around all the time, particularly in the startup world. I mean, half the time, the companies aren't around they've gone to, right? Not all companies succeed. Very common. My experience is in other parts of the country, you would be asked much more um, probing questions if you move around. Say Cincinnati, for example, not considered the most dynamic environment uh, for business. If you know, if you if you, you move around, you might be under more more questions. In some places, um, like Silicon Valley and other high tech areas, if you move around, that's sort of everybody's moved around. So your hiring manager is moved around, and so it's it, it's accepted. So you- well, I think that's going to be shaken up. That dynamic that you just explained. I think that's a valid point where you're saying like Silicon Valley versus Cincinnati or Toledo or, or whatever. Yeah, that, that makes sense to a degree. But I think, and this is maybe like a uh, an X factor, going forward that um, because remote work being work from home, people now thinking, no, I don't need someone just in Silicon Valley for this role. I can hire anybody anywhere. So, you know, in the middle of the Appalachian Mountains, if they have high-speed internet, 
they're good. You know what I mean? Like if they fit the job description. So I I think that that could change that dynamic a little bit, uh, but it might take the people in Cincinnati or some of those other smaller areas to, you know, a couple years for them to kind of, I guess, understand that. You know what I mean? Is that valid? You think? Yeah, I would, I would think so. Um, uh, and uh, remember, because what they're what you'd be doing if you're in Cincinnati, Toledo, or in the Appalachian Mountains is now you're you're changing your mindset. So uh, because you're going to be working remotely somewhere else for a company that doesn't, well, nobody likes to lose employees. Don't get me wrong, but that it's more accepted to move from one place to another. So there's two parts going on there: where you are and what your upbringing is and what your experience is. And and the second part is integrating, if you will, in for your new the new company and the dynamic and where you are region. So. Um, so I agree with you. It's valid. And it, you know, t- it takes time. There's a, any kind of movement or change takes time. Yeah, yeah, definitely does. So uh, I have one last uh, odd question for you. Uh, I was saving this to, to last because it's a personal story of uh, ours. What liability does a company have when they have spammer or fake ads going out? And they're contracting people. What type, if any, of liability would that company have? So you have to explain that a little more because I'm not sure I understood. Okay, think think of like more like an identity theft ring, stuff like that, where what they're doing is um, uh, they're taking XYZ business, okay, dot com. So it's XYB dot com. And maybe they go, they create a site, XYZ careers dot com. So that it looks like it's legit, like the career section. And you have people that are hiring underneath that that company's name, okay? Acting like it's a company. They got the names. They got people's LinkedIn profiles. They've even created like elaborate type scammers, okay? Is there any liability? Because that's going on right now with uh, the great resignation. In fact, I have an article that's going to be coming out on Forbes.com. Uh, about this exact issue. And, you know, thinking of the great resignation, don't get scammed. It should be the title of the article if they, you know, the the editor doesn't change it. But um, uh, with that, uh, you know, what we're seeing, uh, you know, with my son, this is where the experience happened. You know, he's 19, he's inexperienced, and he starts telling me things. I'm getting red flags, like, this don't sound right. Why is he being, he's 19, why is he getting $60 an hour? You know, all this stuff, like, it's crazy. And basically, it was to an attempt to steal his identity, bank accounts, all that type of stuff. What type of liability, if any, does the the actual company have in a case like we're not thinking of legal action or anything like that just so people are clear but i'm just asking in general is there any liability or responsibility to the company when there's a bad actor spoofing themselves as them giving out uh, fake employment offers and stuff like that well i i think uh, so just so i understand you're talking about the uh, a legitimate company that's being spoofed by, by a scam artist right the the legitimate company is actually a victim of that as well right is that what is that what's going on that that is actually yeah yeah that so that that's what we found out with the uh, with my son and the company, what we did was uh, me. I'm like, hey, look, I reached out to the one of the uh, well, all three names that were indicated in the emails or the letters, which actually were real employees of the company. I got their profiles on LinkedIn because it didn't sound right. And I'm like, hey, look, 
it says you sent this email to my son uh, that you were hiring him. He's 19. He's an adult. I let him do, you know, I push him independence, do what you want, blah, blah, blah. I try not to get involved. But as he starts telling me things, and then as I start looking at these things, I'm noticing that uh, it, it's not adding up to me. Can you please confirm to me, you know, if this a, a legit employment offer? And she's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And that I explained the situation. And first thing, 9 a.m., very next morning, they're legal, their CEO, and the people involved, like they took it extremely seriously. Okay. So, in another scenario, though, maybe the company's like, eh. I don't care, but they're still a victim. Should they care? Uh, yeah, for sure they should care because if they become knowledgeable about it, um, if they know what's, first of all, they're victims and they're going to be hurt. But if they if they don't care, they throw up their arms and they are aware of what's going on, there may be potential liability depending in what state you're in and what, and, and, and what well, and I don't know exactly what the federal rules are with this, but for sure, it's not only, it's terrible as a business matter, but if they say, well, I don't care that it's going to hurt me business-wise and they're not, and they know that a scam is going on, and that they're being used, um, their name and likeness is being used in a, in a bad way. There could be um, liability depending on what jurisdiction and what was going on. There may, and again, I, I know nothing, very little about it. This company called it uh, very, they were surprised. They're like, this. these scammers did their research. They, they said this was a very elaborate scam. Like it was very, very well done how they did it. The only thing, how they messed up and what gave me the red flag to reach out is, um, well, probably shouldn't say it on on a podcast because now they'll know. But uh, basically, the who, who is lookup, where you can look up who owns the database. The regular company was all registered to the corporate address. The uh, the The spoofed company that was their careers site was actually registered in Canada to a private company. And that's where the red flags went off. Like this is this has got to be fake. Stop communicating with them until I talk with the real company. Yeah. So a lot of com- I mean, companies hate that, by the way, they're the victims of this. And and the IT specialists spend their lives trying to counteract this, uh, this kind of spoofing. And and a lot of companies. We found so many now that we're we're aware, like my son is going because he's trying to he just started a Penn State for his uh, sophomore year. And he's trying to earn some money so he can get extra food. And basically, uh, you know, he's an inexperienced job circuit. But now that he's been through this experience, he's telling me like, hey, I'm looking at jobs on LinkedIn. I'm looking at jobs on Indeed.com. You know, he's looking at legit places. It's not like he's searching Craigslist. And these, you know, you know, supposed to be legit places are full of a lot of spam and fake job offers. And how, how was this one as a matter of interest, this one that uh, spoofed your son that you that you thankfully caught? How was it making money off of him? Was it trying to get get him to give him give them money? Well, well no, no I, there probably would have been at some point. Um, it was either so their legal advised us not to play it out. I'm like, Dudes, we got the people. Obviously, we made the local police report here outside of Philly and suburbs, but we're in a small township. They're like, yeah, here's your police report number. If uh, anybody steals anything, you know, let us know. 
they didn't care. But we're like, we have them talking to us. Like, you guys can track that. They, they don't care. They don't have the resources or willpower to want to do that. And it seems like where this co- other company was that was scammed too, they, their local townships, so their legal is like, just drop it. But, um, yeah, it, it was crazy. If you want to have an interesting uh, conversation in another podcast, um, you should invite somebody on, these IT guys who do this for a living, and they can tell you scam after scam and how good some of these scammers are and and, and even how it's very difficult for them to locate, you know, the specialists to figure it out. Yeah, we had to send over, I think, I believe that they were able to um, – find out who the the domain was registered to and they got the website uh taking down and now i think they believe i believe they're in the process or court order or something like that to kind of take over that domain um uh, with all the meta uh, metadata that we gave them from the email trying to prove that it was fraudulent but they were there was two to three different types of fraud that they were trying to do. One was identity fraud, get his ID, social security number, because uh, they were asking for all that type of information. Um, number two is the thing is they were trying to get him to purchase a, um, uh, it was a very, very expensive equipment. I mean, you're probably talking like seven, $8,000 worth of uh, Apple equipment and hardware and stuff like that. And they're like, oh yeah, you know, you'll receive a deposit or a, uh, a check in the mail. So it, it was either going to be like one of those fake check uh, mail schemes, or it would have been one of those things where, you know, a lot of people don't know this, but um, for a lot of bank wires and stuff like that, you can't initiate the transaction and cancel it almost right away, depending on who who you bank with. Um, And with that, it'll show up as pending on the other end because it it was probably sent, but it wasn't settled yet with their bank. And in that period of time, they actually cancel it. So you see that you have a pending deposit, you need to go out, buy that stuff. And, but then that deposit disappears and then you're, you're stuck with that. And they're asking for their equipment back and, there's a lot of different ways that that you're able to get scanned. We apparently learned. It, it, there's, there's, I mean, as you know, lots of professionals out there that spend their whole lives trying to counteract this stuff. Anyways, with your, as far as your book goes, as far as your company goes, why don't you tell us where we can get your book, the name of your book again, and how we can get in contact. So Jotham, this has been great. Please do us a favor. How can we, where can we go buy your book? Please tell us where your book's located. Also, tell us how we can reach out to your businesses because you are the principal, but the good principal, at the law offices of Jotham Estine, PC. Where can we find your business and your book? Uh, The book is called Negotiate Like a CEO, and you can find that in two places. If you want to buy it, you can go to Amazon.com and get it either in electronic version or in print. Uh, If you want to learn more about it, uh, or learn more about me, you can go to the website for the book, which is a negotiate like a CEO book.com. And uh, there'll be all sorts of information, including uh, an excerpt. Uh, my professional website is www.jotham.com, which is my first name. Oh. I've had that for uh, 25 plus years, a long time. And uh, I realized right away that um, if you're going to practice your name or the domain, 
now the domain. Yeah. I've, had my, yeah, I've had my name longer than that. But no, I, I realized right, you know, early on in Silicon Valley, you better have my own domain uh, if I'm yeah. going to practice in Silicon Valley where I started. And uh, and uh, so I got I got the uh, the website. Where does the name Jotham uh, come from? I've never have seen that name before. Ancient biblical name, but it's only mentioned three times in the Bible: uh, Judges chapter nine, Second Chronicles twenty seven, and uh, First Matthew and the genealogies. And those are the three places you'll find it. So even it's rare. Uh, it's a rare biblical name. Was uh, your father like a pastor or priest or something like that? I mean, to have that rarest of rarest biblical names? No, not at all. My parents wanted a name that started with J and they couldn't agree. And so they uh, went to the went to the Bible and they went like that. And I think they came across Jotham. And so that's what they named me. And um, I was an active kid. So uh, my mother was lucky she named me that because she, she always knew who would turn around when she called my name out. Wow. Wow. That, 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 that's great though. Especially, I mean, I think having a name like that, how many Jothams around the world are there, uh, might be able to count them in both hands. I don't know. Uh, we might have to maybe add in my, my, uh, you know, fingers and toes, but being able to grab that domain was definitely a, a, I think a bonus for you because not many people had the luxury of having their first name as their domain. So we're going to make sure, as always, that we're going to have that link down below in the description, as well as a link to where you can buy his book on Amazon. But hey, Jotham, thank you so much. This has been awesome. You have fun? Yeah, thanks a lot for having me on your show. It's been a great conversation, David. And uh, and enjoy the city of brotherly love. Oh, definitely, definitely. And enjoy out there, California side. I, I, miss, I miss my California. I miss the food. The food was so good, San Diego, L.A. But, uh, uh, you know, slowly but surely and getting uh, you can see I'm getting a little bit cheekier because I'm getting custom to the uh, the cheese steaks and the calzones and uh, Philadelphia the pretzels. That, that's what I remember uh, besides the cheese. Steak. The, the, the pretzels. Pretzel. Oh, my God. The pretzels out of here that they sell. They are so good. I don't like the pretzel Philadelphia pretzel factory or whatever it's called. That chain stuff I don't go for. But they do have some mass produced pretzels that are local here that are just off the wall. They're, they're amazing. I love them. Anyways, Jotham, I got to run. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Very grateful. And uh, best of luck with your book, man. Thanks a lot. Have a great one. Yeah. YouTube. Bye-bye. That was an incredible chat with Jotham, right? First, you all know the routine. If you found this interview helpful, if it war uh, sparked those warm and fuzzies, do me a favor, hit that like button, smash that subscribe button. But if you really want to help us out because you know Shark Bite Fizz is the greatest kept secret in the world of small business. Please do us a favor. Share us out to your friends, your family, your colleagues, anywhere that you dwell on the interwebs, whether Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, Minds, wherever you go, share out this episode. I'd love to see nothing more than Jotham and Shark Bite Fizz out there trending. Now let's get back to uh, the real rock star of the show, Mr. Jotham Stein. I really love this interview, especially when we were chatting about things like negotiating your own pay, you know, sales, things like that, and really how you can protect yourself during negotiation with an employment agreement when you're looking at a new job. I mean, we are still in somewhat of the great resignation, and all in all, everything that he had to share with us was solid advice and, you know, a really awesome stuff, Jotham. I mean, thank you 
so much for joining the show and really just spilling your knowledge out all over the place. It was entertaining. It was fun. It was educational. And please don't forget to go grab Jotham's new book, Negotiate Like a CEO. Question of the day. How do you negotiate your employment deal? Leave a comment down below if you're watching on YouTube. If you want to be on the show, please shoot out an email, interviews at Biz. If you're watching on YouTube again, join the channel for only $3 a month. You can become a baby shark, uh, you know, like I said earlier, every dollar counts. So whether you're joining the channel or you're just giving us a super thanks, that's that little heart icon with the dollar sign on it on the video on YouTube, really supports your contributions, allows us to do what we're doing. You all know this by now, but I'll say it once again. I'm David Strausser. This is Shark Bite Biz, and we'll see you all next episode. Cheers. Thank you for listening to Shark Bite Biz. We hope you got some insightful info from this podcast. Be sure to subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and visit us on the web at www.sharkbitebiz.com. How has business changed for you in the 20s? Email us at podcast at sharkbitebiz.com so you can join us and share your story. 